Hello, Adam Greenfield here, host of the Great Communicators podcast series. And what you're about to hear is the full, unedited interview with one of the guests we spoke with. If you haven't listened to the fully produced episode yet, I definitely encourage you to do so before listening to this one. They're shorter in length and much more refined. You can find them all at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. The idea behind these longer, unedited conversations is to give you an opportunity to hear the entire talk, orts and all. This is not only a fun way to hear the full flow of the conversation, but it also emphasizes the importance of the points made in the shorter, produced episodes, which, again, can be found at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the conversation. All right. So could you state your name and your job title? My name is Lee Haffrey. I'm a senior lecturer at MIT Sloan School of Management. How um, long have you been doing the work that you've been doing? I have taught at Sloan since 1995. And I started out teaching in the communication area. I still have that affiliation, but I now teach leadership and ethics and communication factors into what I do in both those areas, but it's less obviously what I teach. What um, drew you to that line of work? I, I guess I could go back to my earliest days. I spent a lot of time reading growing up, and and I have to be honest with you. I think sometimes I see the world as a series of narratives. In fact, I've now published two books that focus on narrative, how we tell stories, why we tell stories, the fact that we can't help telling stories, and the the importance of checking ourselves as we tell those stories for integrity and accuracy, and also, of course, the impact that those stories have on the people around us, which is a significant component to leadership. Interesting. has your definition of communication, I mean, it sounds like you have a very nuanced definition of communication. Has it changed over your career or has it always been kind of steadfast for you? I think it, I think my idea of how we communicate effectively has not changed. It, it has gotten more complex maybe because I realize how many different ways people tell stories. And growing up, I worked, lived in multiple cultures. I spoke, and this would be relevant, I think, for a lot of our students, uh, several different languages, French, German, some Russian, some Romanian. And and working across those cultures and the languages that go with them, I realized that, uh, A, there is no one right way to do anything, but B, that in many cases, people have the same impulses, the same instincts, and frankly, the same values. So how do you negotiate the combination of difference and similarity that I think we all see when we work across cultures? What story do you tell to recognize that, that nuanced day-to-day experience of living in the world? Um I'm kind of interested in what you see. I mean, so as I've come to understand it, the this, this graduate PhD uh, candidate students here at, at MIT are really, you know, burgeoning researchers or professionals um, in the beginning of their career. Whereas undergraduates, they might not have any experience. These people are actually doing the work. Um, 
but they're trying to figure out how to have this foothold. Um, and communication is an important part of that. Uh, right. What do you notice about the students that you work with at this level or at those levels that I mentioned? At the graduate level, students, they come to MIT and similar institutions because they want to do in-depth research. They want to identify problems. They want to identify solutions to the problem. They are working usually in a field that has existed for some time in which other people have done serious work. And so to do what you do effectively at the graduate level, you need to, forgive me for using the phrase, but go down the rabbit hole. Right. You need to find out what's going on and you need to differentiate what you produce from the work that a lot of other people have done previously, sometimes on exactly the same topic. When that happens, you tend to forget, I think, reasonably that the world out there doesn't really care about the finer points of what you're discerning and and the, the larger public, which may actually have a serious stake in the work that you're doing also needs to understand why you have done what you've done, why the answers that you've come up with differ from the answers that other people have come up with and might actually be more accurate. So reaching out feels to me fundamental. It may also feel to the individual graduate student like a waste of time because it doesn't do the kind of defining work that you feel you need to do professionally. But if if that work is to have any short, near-term impact, you've got to be able to say to the world, this is why what I'm doing matters. So, so then communication, is it a function of the science itself or, or the work that you're doing? It will, it will depend. The, the communication about your work will depend certainly to some extent on the work itself, the content of you're doing absolutely you can't you can't walk away from the the specifics of your project your research but at the same time you need to think about how you reconcile or adjust adapt what you're doing to the, the more general public discourse and what people who don't have your detailed background will expect what vocabulary you can use to help them understand why what you do matters and so you're looking for an alignment of your own work and the content of your work with what the world at, at, at large uh, has on the table for discussion and the kind of expectations that they bring to the world of science. I use a, in one of my courses, I use a play uh, by Michael Frain, uh, Copenhagen, which is about Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg, so two Nobel winning uh, physicists, right, who have a meeting during World War II. It's all about the, the atomic bomb and the projects that the Nazis on the one side and the Americans on the other uh, were developing. And and the third character in the, in the play, Margrethe Bohr's wife, plays the role of the, of the public. She tests both physicists who are deeply involved in their work and their research and says effectively, and, and she does some of this just passively, but you know, does what you're telling us make sense? Why does this matter? How does it matter? Explain to me as a stand-in for the broader public why what you are doing and why what you are doing matters and how we judge it to be good or bad. 
And I think, you know, it doesn't have to be the atom bomb, it doesn't have to be nuclear energy, but anything that, that serious researchers engage in, in the name of, call it pure science, they still, I think, for ethical reasons, need to be aware of the way in which what they do intersects with daily life. Yeah, I was thinking about, as you were saying that, um, I have a background in comic book art, and I teach a lot of people how to make comic books. And one of the things that I've come across, uh, even I've made the mistake is, at my undergraduate in graphic design and marketing, so I focused a little too much on the marketing and less on the content. And it's interesting how horrible it is when you realize that you have a great marketing plan for under like content that doesn't deserve it. Um, and, like, <laughs> um, and I'm kind of curious about that sentiment in, in the sense of like, how much do you have to keep your audience in mind as you're working or because that could be a rabbit hole in and of itself. Of course, you, the, the thinking solely in terms of the relevance of what you're doing whatever it, how, however deep the science can be uh, a sig significant disadvantage to, to a researcher. I, I, you know, I, we're talking about a spectrum and, and, you know, I, earlier I said that the content of your project, the content of the science that you're doing matters deeply in the communication about it uh, to, to, look around at the world and say, well, people have an interest in pick your topic, right? So I'm going to do that, or I'm going to craft a marketing message that will appeal to them because it means it'll be easy for me to get grants because it'll put my name in the lights because I'll get mentioned in the papers and social media, whatever. I don't think much of that happens at a place like MIT, but the temptation exists and and so when we talk about professional communication i would argue that you 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 need to be mindful of the risk of getting or the, the potential for seduction shall we say right that your name and lights i think all of us have a little bit of that in this somewhere you want to test uh for the motives that bring you to the work that you do and the way you do it and the way you transmit it I guess too, you know, we're, we're, we've got two terms at, at, at uh, under consideration here: professional communication, and we've already talked a fair amount about communication. Professional matters too. What does it mean to be a professional? You know, when I ask my classes here at Sloan, how many of you think of yourselves as professionals? Virtually every hand goes up, right? Because we have very positive associations with the term, and we should. But what does what does profession professionalism mean? bunch of things, uh, including a code of conduct. So a set of ethical standards, mindfulness that goes with that, that you know that you have a trust-based relationship with society, that those who don't have your expertise, which is another key component to professionalism, trust you to deliver you what you do well. And well means, first of all, I think putting there, that is the patients, the clients' interests, and of your own, right? But also adhering to a set of standards that, that the profession has articulated in communication with this larger society. In many cases, I mean, people worry about 
the profession's ability to corner a market and to establish monopoly control, right? So if you limit the number of people who can become doctors, theoretically, you could also make sure that you keep your salaries high, right? But on the plus side, I think we also see professions as correcting for market failures. So it's not about generating a profit. It's not about lining your your pockets. It's about seeing to it that people get services that otherwise would not be available to them. The key term here is service, right? You are providing a service of one kind or another. And I would argue that people who work in the in academics, who are doing serious research in the sciences, but also the humanities, you know, and the arts, uh, have some obligation to think about the relationship between what they do for their own pleasure, for the pleasure of people who do the kind, same kinds of work they do, but what responsibility they have to the larger society. I don't think you ever want to let that go away. And communication makes it possible for you to ensure that. It just struck me that um, I have this, I don't know how to phrase it a different way, but um, I'm curious as to, well, first, do you think this, but then what do you think of what I'm about to say? Which is one of the things that we've come across is not a lot of scientists, uh, professionals uh, in STEM. Um, are getting good communication, uh, education, um, or even a lot of the people we talked to had never gotten it when they were in school for, for what they were doing as engineers or, or as, uh, you know, um, language specialists or neuroscientists. They, no one taught them how to be good communicators. They had to figure it out on their own. Um, and this is starting to feel like a trend within the, within, you know, this field, the STEM field. And I'm wondering, uh, why do you think that is? Do people in STEM these days not get training in communication? I, I haven't spent enough time in the community myself to be able to say with any accuracy, I would say you know, if you think about the way we've educated ourselves over centuries now, rhetoric, grammar, and so on used to play a fundamental role in what we thought of as serious education. And we look back on those times now and say how ignorant those people were to think that that would provide us with the truths that make the society or any society work. We have all of this empirical evidence for the way society, people, nature uh, work, and that matters easily as much as the ability to turn a fine phrase. But the truth, so maybe the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of believing whatever you do in the lab will give us the truth and that's all that matters. Uh, and we've forgotten that communicating uh, what we discover matters equally. But, I, I, you know, you, you think about the kinds of courses people offer now and the, and the ongoing concern, lament, about the failure of writing skills in undergraduates and so on. I think we know that it matters. And, and to the extent, you know, certainly at Sloan, we have the courses to allow us to address the need for good writing and speaking skills. And students walk away from those courses knowing that they have learned things that will make a difference. People's skills matter, and they don't just matter in management, although, you know, the, the MBAs, go off for the summer between their two years and discover that indeed those people's skills make all the difference in the world. The same thing I would argue is true for the scientists on campus. That's interesting. Um, 
because I, I just, you, you triggered this idea of, uh, I mean, the people who invented modern science or, or the, the original researchers who were trying to develop a, a code of communication. Um, they couldn't have foreseen the advent of instant communication or video or podcasts or the ability to just talk to somebody on the phone because it was like, you know, publishing was the number one way to connect to people right. at a distance. And I'm wondering from your standpoint, because you've talked a little bit about ethics. Um, I don't know if there's been ethical guidelines applied. I'm sure there has on some level been applied to multimedia and, and, and different ways of communicating. But like, how do you go about constructing ethics of professionalism when you're experimenting with new forms of communication? Innovation poses a, a standard and regular challenge to our notions of right and wrong, you know, when, and, and I mean, we now have sites that address the question of ethics in the online world. Uh, so if we want to talk technology alone, as you articulate new ways of communicating, but also new ways of doing anything, for, it's not just about communication, it's all of the stuff that's coming out connected with science and technology wind up playing catch up. In other words, here's the challenge. Now, how do we manage it? And, you know, one word that, that, that looms in the background, regulate. How do we regulate the uses of, of, of one kind of technology or another? How do we regulate the results, sometimes the unforeseen consequences of a scientific discovery that really does matter and will make a difference to the way we live our lives and yet has implications that we haven't fully understood? Right. The, the debate around pure science goes to the same point. At what point does a discovery that on the face of it represents a real gain to knowledge as we have conceived it, at what point does it have an impact that we didn't foresee and that may have serious, serious negative consequences for segments of the society? At what, how do we manage that? So, you know, the regulators are playing catch up. The ethicists are playing catch up. But at the same time, I think you could reasonably argue that the kinds of challenges we face today, we have faced in the past. You know, when we decided the, the earth was not flat, that had implications, right? And people wrestled with the, the, the challenge and found ways of dealing. And some of it represented uh, a true advance in knowledge and a way of seeing ourselves. But we go through these cycles, you know, Kuhn, uh, Thomas Kuhn, uh, with the structure of scientific revolutions, I think recognized that in the area of science specifically, <clears throat> we go through these cycles of developing, confirming, and then dismantling ways of seeing the world. And, and the ethics implied in that cycle are real and something that we live with on a daily basis. Um, so I guess my last question, or so, I mean, it doesn't have to be, but, uh, my, one of my last questions is, uh, about what you're seeing. We, just going back to the students who are coming in, even your students, like, what do you notice is, like, something that they, yeah, but... no, it's me, I was just shutting off. Okay. Okay, go ahead. What, 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 what's, um, something that you notice is a trend or at least something that you feel like all students should work on, but the ones that are coming in and, and seeking help in this, this kind of area, 
or is there anything? Is it different for everybody? I mean, when I look at, at my students in any of the courses I teach, I see uh, a need for skills in argumentation. That is, I, th I think we would all like to believe that there is an absolute truth out there and that over time we will discover it and live in, in bliss and, and, <laughs> and, and you know, innocence for the rest of our collective lives. And that may be the reality, but I think for the moment we have to recognize that we differ in our perspectives on the way the world works and on the truth or falsity of any given premise. And so we need to find a way to make the case, whatever we believe the case to be. And we need to have the patience to sit down with people who with equal good faith come to totally different conclusions based on the same set of facts, right? So our engagement in this has everything to do with communication. We have an obligation to figure out how to argue well. And by argue well, I don't mean engage in deceit uh, or, or manipulation of the facts, but to, in, in good faith, do our best to weigh the implicate, to take in all the facts and weigh their relative significance given where we are headed collectively, and then make the case. How do you build a good argument? You know, the, the 15280, the communication for leaders here at Sloan, I focuses on persuasion and the importance of making a strong case for your position. And I do the same in my leadership and ethics courses because communication, a good argument, makes the difference there too. People, I think, instinctively know when they are being presented with a, a fairly framed set of circumstances, evidence, and they will believe, at least short-term, will believe the person who manages to do that well. But I, I would also argue, you know, when we think about communication, I talk to you, I talk at you, and that qualifies as communication. But the reality is it's only communication if you hear what I'm saying and you have the opportunity to come back at me. It's not just feedback, it's also your position. The conversation matters. And, and so you need to be able to put together a good argument. You also need to have the skill, the ability, the patience, the maybe it's wisdom to listen to the other person, hear what that person, he or she is saying, and build it into a conversation that then moves towards consensus. Those skills matter hugely. Was there ever a time it, where you learned these, some of these lessons? Like where you, where you realized something about communication that you didn't know before? Uh, I, I mentioned earlier that I grew up in an environment where I heard a lot of different languages. I lived in a lot of different cultures, and that experience, to my mind, shaped my perspective. And when you realize that people can live happily doing things, the same things very differently, you also then realize, I mean, call it tolerance, call it inclusion, maybe that's a better word, but once you include all those differences, then how do you, how do you build Maybe it's the global society. How do you build a global society that allows us to live in relative harmony, even as we do the things we do, the way we do them 
differently culture by culture. And, and once you get, so facing that, I think I understood that building the conversation makes all the difference. I do it in the seminar room. I do it in my courses. And what I see suggests that that multifaceted conversation gives people a feeling of fulfillment that they don't otherwise have. So you, you mentioned, oh, we're at 130, but, um, uh, so you mentioned, multi, you, I, I just heard a lot of that. <laughs> a lot of terms. No, 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 it's fine. You said multifaceted and I'm, I'm curious about what you mean by that. So like, it, well, first contextually, why did you grow up with all the different uh, languages that you were learning? Was it were you traveling, or I, I I got exposed to that world at two levels. One, both my parents were immigrants to the states, uh, and my father joined the foreign service when I was a child, and so we traveled a lot in in that context. But you know, in some ways, going abroad from the United States, since both my parents had come as immigrants to the United States, was going home. Uh, and, and that, that fluidity, I think, affected the way I think about the world. One of the courses I teach here at Sloan uh, brings in stories from a dozen different cultures, I think it's maybe 10 uh, specifically. And, 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 of course, the Sloan population, and I think the Sloan population represent, fairly represents what we see at MIT as a whole. It's very international. 36%, I think, at the moment, people from uh, countries other than the U.S. and even a certain number of the Americans are here having grown up, born, been born in and grown up in other countries, of green card holders, whatever. So we live, at least in this environment, in a world where you have a lot of different cultures and a lot of hyphenate uh, individuals who think of themselves as belonging to multiple cultures. There is a kind of cosmopolitanism to the world that we know that that. I find very rich and very inspiring, but it also comes with the risk that you wind up not knowing where you belong. And so being uh, managing dislocation feels to me fundamental. I don't think anyone likes feeling like he or she is floating on the surface of things without any roots. So how do we, how do we establish that? You want an appreciation of the common, the common experience even as you celebrate the differences. And that's where the multifaceted quality that I just referred to comes from, that it is, there is an entity, uh, a sense of community that at the same time recognizes that people live that community experience in very different ways. Okay. Do you have any uh, last minute tips or tricks that like, I don't know, some memorization thing that you can do while you're Trying to figure out how to communicate, or is I mean, if you don't, that's fine. I just figured out. <laughs> Fundamental to any communication in the context that I've just articulated, I think you have to be willing to listen. You have to be willing to suspend judgment short term. You have to. You have willingly to set aside your own assumptions and recognize that maybe you don't know what's going on, that you don't have a full understanding of the situation in which you find yourself. People, you know, and this goes back to the, our, our, our central focus here on communication, people 
by and large willingly open their mouths to say things. Uh, you know, we all like to talk about ourselves, right? But the people who I think adjust best to the world that we now know, and you know, given the material I teach, you'll understand. I would say too that the best leaders listen to what people say and listen in a way that allows them to hear not just what is said on the surface, but the implications of what is being said and have that those people have the ability to imagine what lies behind uh, the, the, the surface message and to work with that. And, and I don't think it's easy and I don't know that there's any one way to get there beyond experience, but I do also think that respect for others makes it possible to practice the patience that allows you to hear what's getting said, and then you respond. This podcast was written and produced by Adam Greenfield. The executive producer of this podcast is Patrick Urich. The Great Communicators Podcast. The Great Communicators Podcast. Brad Comics Live, Brad Comics The Game, and the Technically Speaking Comic Book Series are part of a professional development initiative called BradX. BradX is made possible by BradX is made possible by the Office of Graduate Education at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. To find out more about BradX as well as get access to other episodes of the Great Communicators Podcast, go to, go to gradx.mit.edu. For more information and links on the music used in this episode, please see the show notes.